We're going to get started with God's Word. If you have a Bible today, and I hope you do have a Bible with you, we're going to be back in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, picking up where we left off last week. We'll read verses 1 through 4 in just a second. We're going to be aiming specifically at verse 2. Uh, within verse 2 of Luke 11, Jesus gives us a formula for prayer. It's not really a formula. It's the way it reads in English, but it's more of an example, and it's supposed to set some categories for us on where our hearts are and what we expect from prayer. Last week, we made it through the first two of those. My goal this week was to get through the last two for a total of four, and we're not going to do it. We're only going to get through one more, and then we're going to have to do number four next week. So I think that will actually help us kind of spread these out and take them more seriously one at a time, but I wanted to let you know, give you an update on that front again. Uh, Luke chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to jump into where we were last week and where we're going to go this week. Here's what happens in Luke 11:1. 1. Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he stopped praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, meaning rabbi or teacher, teach us to pray. Teach us in the same way that John, this is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin who was older than him, who had disciples, some of whom left to come and follow Jesus. This disciple says, teach us in the same way that John taught his disciples to pray. Give us a lesson. Instruct us. We want to learn. We want to know. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored and may your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation. So we started looking at those verses last week. We really honed in on verse 2, and we made the statement. Hopefully I made the argument in a way that was convincing to you. I haven't heard about anybody going home and smashing their cell phone with a sledgehammer. But the point stands, right, that we don't really have a lot of time to pray. We don't make a lot of time to pray. Prayer is harder now than it ever has been in human history for anybody because we've lost all of our margin. We've lost our free time. We've lost the moments that used to make up all the in-between, all the connective tissue between the big stuff that we did during the day. It's gone. It's filled now with podcasts and music and phone calls and text messages and emails and social media notifications. And, and, and we're probably not going to move backwards in time. We're probably not going to go to a time and a place where that doesn't exist anymore. And so that presents us with a choice. It's not an insurmountable position to be in, but it's a place where we have to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to do the work that prayer requires, or are we going to stay the kind of people who really wish we prayed, but aren't really willing to work on that at all? Jesus' apprentices knew that prayer could be learned, or they wouldn't have asked him the question that they did. And that's good news for you and I, because if we know that we have a problem with prayer, and we need to solve that problem, we're going to have to go to somebody who's smarter than we are, who understands our world better than we do, and can give us an example and teach us a lesson that will actually bear fruit in our lives. We just read that one of Jesus' disciples approached him after a particular session of prayer in his own life and made that request and said, would you teach us? Would you show us the way to do this? We know other rabbis do this with their apprentices. Would you do it for us, please? His answer, Jesus' answer back to his apprentices, gives us four fundamentals of prayer. Not just a formula to pray, which is sort of how the Lord's Prayer functions culturally in movies and books and even the way that lots of uh, music is sort of involved with or named after parts of the Lord's Prayer. We, we tend to treat it sort of like a stamp that we have to put on our prayer life or else it's not valid, when instead what I think Jesus intends is to teach us how to pray, what kinds of prayers to pray, the way to shape and mold our attitude, our inner posture when we come to God in prayer. Now, if you're not familiar with the term fundamental or you haven't thought about prayer this way before, let me just give you maybe a helpful analogy. Every sport, every skill, every job that's out there that you have to know to navigate the world has basic building blocks. 
And this is what I mean when I use the word fundamentals. I'm talking about the building blocks of prayer, the basics of prayer. A person can never attain mastery. A person really will never even attain a sense of familiarity with prayer or with any other job or skill if they're unwilling to break it down into its fundamentals and then practice those fundamentals until they begin to sort of integrate, until we start to be able to function by instinct more than having to follow specific steps. When I was in seventh grade, I made the uh, Foster Middle School basketball team. Uh, so you guys are probably proud of me, right? Is that impressive to you? You didn't know I was that good of an athlete? Uh, here's the really unique thing about making the seventh grade basketball team. I didn't try out for it. I actually tried out for the football team and I got put on the basketball team. And I don't really have an explanation for you about how that happened. Uh, I actually was on my way home. I was in the parent pickup line one day after school, and a kid in a basketball uniform came and ran up and said, coach is looking for you. What are you doing? And I was like, what coach? It's not even football season. And he was like, no, we, ba basketball practice started 10 minutes ago. Coach already called your parents. You're on the team. You got to come change. And I was like, I don't even know how to play basketball. Okay. So I, anyway, so I ran down to the gym and I got changed and I was on the team apparently. Now, it would help you to know that when I was in seventh grade, I was six feet and one inch tall, and that's probably what coach saw more than anything else, right, was just that I could do this and contribute to the team in some meaningful way, but I couldn't even really contribute to the team, even if I was doing this. I was so bad at basketball, and the other players knew it. Church, hear me when I tell you, we did not win a single game that I played in that entire season, and that was both the beginning and the end of my basketball career, because I had no fundamentals. There was one game in particular where I missed six consecutive shots, and not on different possessions. I also got the rebound. I could do that, and I threw the ball back off the backboard and caught it and panicked a little bit more and threw it back off the backboard and panicked, and all five of the other team members are just around me like piranhas eating a piece of raw meat, and all my teammates are like, just pass us the ball, and we'll score, and I'm just throwing the ball off the backboard, hoping, and then time ran out, and we lost by one point. And we walked in the locker room, and my coach shook his head, and he tried to bail it out. He was like, now, team, we should have never been in that possession. And all the other players just started hollering at me about how sorry I was and that I should never play again. And I started the next week. Again, I think because I was six feet and one inch tall. I can't explain that to you. And I was not what you would call a diamond in the rough. I was all rough. I have always stayed all rough. We've never found the diamond. It's not in there on the basketball court for me, okay? Was I tall? Yes. Was I strong? I think so, for a seventh grader. Was I fast? I was fast enough, but I had no fundamentals. I couldn't dribble a basketball, and yet I was on the team. I could not shoot a basketball, and I was on the team. I could only rebound the ball if it came into my hands that would not move. I would just stand like this and hope that the ball would come to me. Never made a free throw in a game. I was always in foul trouble, and yet I kept being put back in a position where I had to figure out what to do. I had natural tools. You could argue that I looked like the kind of person who should know how to play basketball and play it well, but because I didn't have any of the fundamentals, I didn't have any advantage at all. Maybe you can see where I'm going. For many of us, prayer feels like this. We are the kind of people who are supposed to know how to pray. We're Christians. Maybe we've been Christians for a long time. Maybe it's been decades. And in some sense, our spiritual stature is taller than all the other seventh graders on the basketball court, if you get my meaning. But without working on the fundamentals, we don't actually have an advantage in prayer because it's all sort of the natural gifts and we have none of the training and we've had no one walk us through the process. We've had no one bring us along and hold us close and allow us to fail and get it wrong and then figure out how to get it right. And for lack of a better way of saying to you, I think it shows. I think that even if we have natural advantages like a praying family or, or a spouse who prays for us all the time, maybe you have a trustworthy and loving church community. Maybe you would say that you found that here at True North. I hope so. 
Maybe you have a personal history of church adjacency, right? Even if you're not sure you're a Christian, your mom made sure that you were at Sunday school every Sunday or that you were at vacation Bible school in the summer or that you were a part of a youth group in your past. In spite of these things that we could argue should give us an advantage, many of us lack the fundamentals. We have tried to jump ahead to spiritual three-pointers and slam dunks when we don't know how to dribble, pass, or rebound. And I'm restating this point to you because it's just not going to get better for us until we can admit that we don't really know what we're doing when it comes to prayer. Even if we have memorized certain prayers from the Bible, or maybe we feel really, really good about one specific category of prayer, if prayer is actually communicating with God, his eternal self, our eternal spirit, most of us would find that, even that definition, a little bit unwieldy, a little bit unfamiliar, and we're not really sure where to go from here. What I want you to do is I want you to understand that it's not too late for you, that you can learn that the fundamentals have been the same fundamentals since Jesus answered that question in Luke 11 2, 2,000 years ago. They haven't changed. The people in your life who live with an intimate prayer relationship with God, where they are communicating with God, where they sense that they can hear from him, where it's comfortable and familiar and life-giving for them to be in God's presence, those people didn't get there automatically. And God didn't snap his fingers and pull them in and reject you instead. Those people have had to learn. They've had to learn the hard way, I would argue, and they've had to learn from Jesus, the way that Jesus prays in his example, to get them before the Father. So what I want you to do is I want you to take Jesus really, really seriously. Even though these fundamentals may feel different, they may feel more emotional than you would have expected, they may feel like they're too personal to be that effective, uh, I don't know. All I know is that they are what they are, and that we can either try to play the game on our own and fail, or we can come to Jesus, take him seriously, listen to him, and learn from him. And I think if we will, if we allow Jesus to sort of reach into our prayer life and, and tweak some stuff and mess with us a little bit, that's, that's what I think he's trying to do, then things are going to get better. So we started this process last week when we discussed the first two fundamentals. The first fundamental that I shared with you, based on Jesus' prayer in Luke chapter 11, is that God is your Father. I think if you can't accept that, you're not going to make it very far. You're going to continue to pray as if you're placing an order in the drive-thru of heaven. And I don't think that's God's intention for you. That informality, that sense of distance, that sense of kind of like, ah, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to sort of go through the motions and do what I've always done. I don't think that truly benefits you very much. Some of us, when we hear the idea that God is a father, we struggle with that, not because it's just too different, but because we have had an experience with a father on earth, a human father who has wronged us deeply. Human fathers make all kinds of mistakes. Human fathers create horrible relationships with their children sometimes. And when it comes time to project that idea onto God, we don't want to do it because maybe we think highly of God and we don't think highly of our own Father. And so to amalgamate, to combine the two together, seems like it's sort of knocking God down a few pegs. What I would invite you to do instead is to sort of relearn what a father can be from God. It doesn't mean that you have to take the complicated relationship that you have and project it onto him. You can bring it with you. He would love for you to do that, and he'll help you untangle it and navigate it, but he'll do it not in the same way that your father might have tried to coerce and manipulate and guilt you into doing He'll do it with love and he'll lead you instead of trying to force you from behind. Human fathers can be many things that are not good. They can be abusers. Human fathers can be cruel. They can be very critical with their words. They're sometimes bullies and they are sometimes takers and they sometimes create wounds in our lives. But God is not an abuser. God is never a bully. He is not cruel. He is not critical. He is not a taker and he is not a wounder. He isn't even unkind sometimes. And some of us have some relearning to do in order to open ourselves up to the presence and the attention of a loving and kind father in God. 
Others of us maybe don't struggle so much with that idea, but we quietly deflect the idea of God as Father because it just doesn't fit our religious experience. Maybe we like the, the sort of formal, distant sense that we have about God because it doesn't really require us to know him personally. It doesn't make us have to do the hard work of opening our inner lives up to his influence. We can just go to church, pray in the morning, pray before bed, and hope that everything works out. Jesus' vision for what it means to communicate with God the Father is almost entirely different from that. Maybe you would even say that you're willing to sing songs on a Sunday morning that refer to God as Father, or you resort, the, excuse me, recite the Lord's Prayer from time to time, but if we still approach God, if we even pray at all, like sort of a mashup of an angry preacher, an overbusy CEO, and an out-of-touch old man, we're not going to experience him the way that Jesus did. And we can. That's open to us. It's available to us. Learning to experience God as our Father is the first fundamental for two different reasons. We need this truth to land for two different reasons. First, if we can embrace that truth, it will transform how you pray. You will pray differently if you think that you're praying to your Heavenly Father instead of just putting a prayer request in the giant Scantron machine in the sky and hoping that you get the answers right and you get what you want out of the bottom. It'll also change what you pray for. It'll change how often you pray. It will transform even how you feel about prayer. So that's good. All of those would be good changes for us, and that's part of where the, that fundamental comes into play. The other reason that we need to learn to experience God as our Father is because without this truth in our hearts and in our minds, we're not going to really care about or know how to apply the other three fundamentals. You see, Jesus' explanation, his demonstration of prayer, it doesn't go from deep to shallow. It doesn't go from hard to easy. It actually starts with the easiest principle. Simply referring to God as Father, that's as easy as this thing is going to get. Past that point, we begin to go into territory that requires even more of us and maybe even more challenging. So take the second fundamental, for example, where we went last week. Our second fundamental of prayer from Jesus' example in Luke 11 is that your Father is within your reach. God is your Father is the first fundamental, and that your Father is within your reach is the second fundamental. Jesus used the phrase, in heaven. It doesn't show up here in Luke 11, but it's in the Matthew 6 version of the same prayer. And if you have your Bible, a physical Bible, you probably have a footnote there in Luke 11 that tells you that in most of the manuscripts, they do use the phrase in heaven. That's what's important to us for the sake of this argument, is we want to understand where is our Father? Where does Jesus say that he is? Does he say that he's distant and far away, or does Jesus say our Father is nearby and close and available to us? Now, at first reading, the phrase in heaven in English, to say our Father is in heaven, it sounds like he's pretty far away. We don't think of heaven as right next door to where we live our daily lives. But Father in heaven is not a phrase that is meant to say that God is far away. It's actually a statement about how close he is to you. I said this to you last week, but I want to repeat it again because I think this is probably a new concept for many of us. Jesus used the Greek phrase tois uranois, which means the heavens. It's plural in English. He uses this again and again in the scriptures when he talks about what the kingdom of heaven is like, when he's in Mark chapter 114 and he says that the kingdom of the heavens has come near or is within our grasp. He's talking about the spiritual realm that God lives in all the time. Eternity is another word that we use for this realm. It's sort of like an atmosphere around us. Jesus is not saying that God lives far away from you on a distant plain made up of clouds and rainbows and harpists. He's saying that God is very, very close by. He's within your reach. Your father is right here, he's with you, he's near you, he's around you, he's beside you. And maybe that doesn't matter to you. Maybe it even feels like a waste of time for me to be reiterating this point to you again today. I think it matters where Jesus locates our heavenly father if he's our heavenly father. If we don't see him that way, see this is where the first fundamental has to really slot in for us before the second one becomes important. If he's not our father, who cares where he is? 
right? As long as I can throw a prayer out in the universe and somehow with God's cosmic satellite array, it gets to wherever he is and he receives it and he types on his computer that I'm going to get a blessing and it comes down my way, right? As long as that's happening and my prayers go in and the blessings come out, then, then who cares, right? God becomes just sort of a, um, a, an office worker in, in the grand scheme of the universe in that sort of scenario. Maybe for you that's what prayer feels like. What God is offering you, what Jesus is offering you is something way deeper than that way more personal and way more transformative where your prayer life begins to shift away from what you can get from God toward whether or not you can be with him and know him. It becomes more about who it is that is hearing the prayers and choosing to respond to them than it is about whether or not those prayers get answered with a yes or a no or a maybe. If God is your father, and Jesus says that he is, then it makes a huge difference whether or not he is near us or he is far away. And the nearer that he is to us, if he is good, if he is loving and kind, the better that is for us. And the farther away that he is, the worse, because he is a good father. For example, if, you, if your mother and your brothers and sisters and grandparents, basically all of your family, plus your teachers, plus your coaches, if they all were telling you all the time, you have the best dad. He's amazing. Let me tell you what he used to do. Let me tell you what he does for work. Let me tell you how he's changing the world and he's helping people and he's serving and he's loving and he's out there really making a difference, transforming the face of the earth. If everybody around you was telling you that but you never met the man, how much good does that actually do for you? The very best sense of relationship that you can have to a person that you've never met but other people tell you is related to you and loves you is you can admire the idea of that person. That's as good as it can get for you. Maybe your Christianity feels like that. I'm not here to condemn you if that's the case. I think that is, unfortunately, extremely common. That the closest we feel to God is that we have a strong sense of admiration for him. We feel for him similar to what we would feel about the quarterback of our favorite NFL team, right? He's out there. We've seen him do cool stuff. I've never met him, uh, but he's, it's really cool to be on his side, and he does a lot of great things, and when he wins, I win, and I'm excited, and that's a good thing. But there's no real relationship there at all. That's not what Jesus intends for you and I. At best, a person in that situation, a father like that that we've never met, becomes a legend or becomes a myth to us that can maybe teach us principles, but is never a person to us personally. If you want to love your father, if you want to trust him, if you intend to share your life with him, then you need him to be close by. And even if he is truly wonderful, if he is far from you, then your ability to care about excuse me, what he thinks And the odds that your character becomes like his character are very, very low. So let me connect some dots here for you. Maybe you have been around the church long enough to meet lots of people. I would argue that there's probably millions of them on the face of the planet alive right now who claim to be children of God but look almost nothing like the character of Christ. Have very little in the way of personality, worldview, thinking, decision-making, parenting, the way they use money, the way they spend their time that looks anything like Jesus and therefore looks anything like God the Father. I would argue that that's probably the result, the fruit from a tree that simply has admiration for God as a distant hero and doesn't know him personally. And I would say that if and when we do the work to know him personally, we won't have to try to change. He'll change us. Being around him will do that to us. For those of you in the room who have been blessed with a good father, that is a life-changing presence for you to share. And your father in heaven is bigger and stronger and more pervasive in the sense that he invades every part of your world when you invite him in, and he changes you from the inside out. Basic logic would tell us that admiring a distant God from far away is unlikely to ever change us. We need proximity in order to become like our Father in heaven. Jesus says that he's within our reach, but that's only good news if we have plans to reach out and make contact with him. 
So that's where we went last week, and I'm taking time to rehash those things because they build. And where we're going to go now for our third fundamental, excuse me, fundamental will build on the first and second fundamental. So yes, God is your father. Yes, your father is within your reach. And if you're taking notes today, here's your third fundamental. Cherishing your father is the point. The point of what? Of prayer, according to the way that Jesus instructs us to pray. If you'll look back again at your Bible, I want you to notice this. I'm not sure what translation you have, but based on what I read this week, most of you, your Bible probably uses the word hallowed, which is a word that we really don't even use on Halloween. It's the only time we even see those letters in that order in the U.S. Or if it's a more modern and kind of cool translation, maybe it uses the word honored. That next phrase Jesus uses in Luke 11:2, he says, Father, you're in heaven, hallowed or honored be your name. The translation that I used is the New English translation. And it says, may your name be honored. But same concept, same word. Honor is sort of the concept in play. Now, honor is a tricky way, in my opinion, to translate the word that actually came out of Jesus' mouth. If you don't know, Jesus didn't speak English, uh, never once. He spoke growing up Semitic languages. He learned to speak Greek because the place that he lived was under occupation of sort of the, the larger Roman Greek empire. And so Jesus used the word, according to Luke, in Luke 11, hagiadzo. Can you guys try to say that for me? Hagiadzo, good. I don't ever make you do that, but that was a little bit fun. I might do that again sometime. Hagiadzo, okay, is a word that comes from Greek. If you don't know, Greek and English are trying to do two different things. Hebrew and English are trying to do two different things. Uh, I've heard it said before that reading the Bible in English, if you're reading the Old Testament, it's like somebody else kissing your wife and then describing it to you. It's like as close as you can get to what's really going on, which is a bummer. Uh, it would be a bummer for me. And then... Uh, <laughs> Reading the New Testament in English is like listening to Beethoven performed on a kazoo. Um, the melody is there, all right? You can get it. You go, I think I heard that somewhere before, but the depth and the richness and the symphonic nature of all the instruments together, we just can't get there because English is such a cobbled together language and you don't care, so I won't talk more about that. But just take my word for it that hagiadzo can be translated hallowed. The King James Version thrusts that word out there and many translators have been scared to death to pick any other word for it. Probably an okay word for it is honored. But if we take the context of what Jesus is actually saying here, if we believe that his intention is to teach children of God to speak to their father, then my perspective is that the word hagiadzo, when translated into English, it needs to lean more personal instead of leaning more impersonal, instead of leaning more formal. Honor, at least in the culture that we live in, is something that we show out of a sense of duty to one another. Okay, you honor a person who has a higher rank than you at work by stopping what you're doing and saluting them in certain settings, if that's the world that you work in. You honor your boss by coming to work at the time that they tell you that you should, and once a year at their annual birthday party or anniversary lunch, you say a few things that maybe you do or don't mean to try to show the rest of the office that you know how to show deference when it's appropriate, okay? But we don't live in an honor-bound society like Jesus did. Especially the world he grew up in, in the Jewish world, honor was very much an example and a symptom of a deep and meaningful love and connection to another person. And it's just not for us. It's a nice side effect, but even the way that we function in our homes with our children, we're pretty snarky with each other, and it just wouldn't cut it. It would not be cool in Jesus' world at all. So what Jesus is driving at when he raises this idea of hagiadzo, or what we translate sometimes as honor, or as to hallow something, to set it aside or consecrate it, I think that... I think that what he's driving at more so is a love relationship word. So let me do a little bit of work with you here, and, and we'll, we'll get to the word cherish, which is obviously where I'm headed right now, okay? In a way, hagiadzo can be translated as honor because it communicates that God is special, and that's good. And he does hold a unique position in our hearts and our lives, and he should. And our attitude toward him is one of reverence or respect, and it should be. 
But honor fails us, as the English translation of the word that Jesus used, when it keeps God at arm's length. Because we can't undo what we just did in the first two fundamentals. If God is our Father, and we're supposed to love and know him personally, and he's very near to us because he's in the heavens, which is Jesus' way of talking about the spiritual atmosphere around us that we can't touch with our bodies, but that God is always inhabiting. If those two things are true, why would Jesus immediately pivot and stiff-arm God light years away or into another dimension? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't think that's what he's intending to do. I think what he's trying to say is, if those things are the case, and we're going to spend time with God, there's going to be a loving response. There's going to be a a position or an attitude that we carry with us that will motivate the way that we pray. The kinds of words that we use, even the way that we live our lives, will be a little bit different if we're spending all this time with this God who loves us. We can't let respect and reverence slip into distance and formality. In a more pure sense, Jesus, I think, is driving at God, our Father's holiness, which is essentially his godness. It's all the things that make him God and us not. In the book of Exodus, a long time before Jesus taught his disciples to pray, a man named Moses spoke with God. God put himself inside this bush that looked like it was on fire, but it wouldn't burn up. And when Moses approached the bush to figure out what the heck was going on, it spoke to him, which is not what he expected. And the bush said, this sense, the spirit within the bush said to him, I am God. And Moses said, what is your name? And God responded by saying, I am that I am. That's my name. Which sounds more like a line from Dr. Seuss, if we can be honest with each other, than it necessarily does the introduction of a personal God who loves us. But this is the idea, okay? Within the context of thinking of God as Father and speaking to God as Father, our interpretation of Hagiadzo should try its best to hold together the idea that God is unique, that he is holy, that he's set apart from us, not in distance, but in function and in being, that he is made of different stuff than we are. Because nobody made him, but he made us. So that means we're on totally different planes of existence, okay? I hope I'm not losing you here. I'm trying not to. But when we get to the interpretation of Hagiadzo in the context of prayer, we have to find a way to keep God holy in our minds and hearts and keep God close in our experience because he's both things. And this is a very hard thing for us to navigate. Like many concepts in the Bible, we want to pick one extreme or the other. We want to say God is either loving or he's terribly cruel, but he can't be both. Or he's full of wrath and judgment, but he also forgives people who ask him to. We we don't have the mental capacity to try to hold both of those things in tension. So we tend, we'll talk about it like we do, but we tend over time to drift in the the pastors that we download their sermons and listen to and the books that we read. We tend to drift one way or the other. And one part of God's character sort of becomes lip service and we become distant from it and we really embrace the other side. And unfortunately... We start looking less like God instead of more like him. By only picking some of his attributes, we actually pick something other than him. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. If God is all of these things and we settle for half of them, that's not actually a fair representation for us or to the world of who God is. And so we have to do both. We have to keep God high and lifted up and holy and right here next to us where he loves us and wants to be. And I think the best way to try to communicate that concept is with the word cherish to lean personal, but keep the sense of elevation and love extremely, extremely high. And again, I know that this may be trotting new ground, like blazing a new trail for you in your prayer life. Unfortunately, many of us often pray to God with all of the emotion that we would offer to our mother with a handshake on her birthday, right? Wouldn't that be an inappropriate, congratulations, mother, you've lived another year. Like, no, you hug your mom and you give her a gift and you wrap her up and you cry a little bit together because she's still alive and you love her. Like, that's what that embrace of that loving relationship looks like. But we sometimes go to God and go, put her there, God. Great to see you again. How's business been? And it's just not the way that Jesus prays. It's not the example given to us. And that's, again, not to condemn you, but to free you up. Unlock whatever it is on your wrists or your heart or wherever you feel like you function that keeps you from being yourself with God. 
Jesus says, you are already. He knows you. You're going to be. So just embrace it and be yourself and talk to him like he's your dad. I would update Hagiadzo into the word cherish. Within the context of communication between a beloved child and a loving father, I think a distant and formal attitude is insufficient. So cherishing your father is the point. The reason that we pray, my friends, is not to get what we want. If you have been praying only to get what you want, it shouldn't be terribly surprising to you if it seems like those prayers are sort of bouncing off the ceiling of your bedroom and not getting anywhere. Because if we're treating God like he's a vending machine or he's a test to pass or he's a boss that may or may not send us a bonus this year based on our performance, we're misunderstanding him at the core of his being. The reason that we pray is not to get what we want. It's not just to avoid what we don't want. It's to to cherish our Father. And this is a little different from the concept of prayer that we've been using so far, okay? Early on in this series of teachings, I told you this. I gave you a definition of prayer. I said it's communication between the eternal human spirit and the eternal living God. You can see it there on the screen. We've talked about this for several weeks. And I think that's true. At the most basic level, prayer can never be prayer if it's less than that. But the point is not just to communicate. That's the function. It's how we do the thing, but it's not the point of the thing. This isn't just an exercise in blind obedience or ritual. Once we start to pray, once we begin to communicate with God, then we can go places with him. We can actually get to know him. We can begin to understand his perspective on life, and we can take on that perspective as our own. Maybe this will help you. In her book, Sacred Rhythms, a gal named Ruth Haley Barton wrote a chapter on prayer as a practice. And early in the chapter, she says this. She says, we are invited into quote, deeper levels of intimacy that will move us beyond communication, which primarily involves words and concepts, into communion. That's the word she uses for cherish, which is primarily beyond words. Later in the same chapter, she goes on to say that God wants us here. He wants us now. He wants us totally. He wants us unconditionally. And as long as we continue to reduce prayer to occasional piety, that stings a little bit, we keep running away from the mystery of God's love. Making contact with God, if he truly wants to be with us and know us that badly, it sparks something deeper and more personal than just honor, at least honor as we understand it in the West within us. Cherishing our Father is the point. So let me break that word cherish down a little bit for you, okay? It's kind of a Valentine's Day word. Uh, You can use it in whatever card you write on Tuesday. There's a freebie for you. But I'll give you a definition of what it means when it comes to the way that we relate to God, our Father. Cherishing God as our beloved Father is made up of three ingredients. It's joy, it's gratitude, and it's worship. Joy, gratitude, and worship are similar to one another, but they're each distinct, and I think they are necessary if we hope to move from appreciating the idea of God to actually cherishing him personally. So let's dig into joy just a little bit here. Joy, I think, is both mental and emotional, and this may be where defining joy has been a challenge for you. Early in my first year at True North, back in 2019, some of you guys were there. I attended a life group. I tried to go to each of the life groups one time because I was the new pastor and nobody knew me that well. And lo and behold, the life group that I attended that evening, we had a debate about the difference between joy and happiness. And I sort of gave my cute seminary answer, and everybody in the room was too real for that. And they went, nope, that doesn't make any sense. What is it really? And I was like, I'm leaving. Uh, I'll go study more books and come back later and tell you. But no, not really. We had a great engaging conversation. But here's what I found in that conversation. There were people in the room who had experienced joy before. They knew they had, no doubt. But they would argue that it was mostly something present in their mind. It had more to do with the way they understood the world. It was sort of a, a way to gain hope, to gain a new perspective, that things could be better, that the sun maybe was rising instead of setting on whatever circumstances they were facing. And then there were other people in the room who had primarily experienced an emotion that they had named joy. 
And these two groups of people could not, they just couldn't fit it together. Some of them were like, oh, I think it's just happiness turned up to 11. And the others were like, no, I think it has more to do with the way that we foresee the future. And the emotionals were going, no, but I can feel it right in the middle of the thing that I'm dealing with. And the others were like, yeah, but it really has more to do with what God might do in the future. And, and so here's what I learned that night after several hours of reflection. And now it's been three or four years since that happened. I think joy is both. This is another great example of how God presents us with a concept that doesn't neatly fit into one thing and not the other, but it actually occupies two categories that we're used to being pretty separate and maybe even opposite of each other. Joy, I think, comes from both the mind and the spirit, what we often refer to as our heart in the West. Joy, I think, originates in both our emotional center and our intellectual center together. Joy is not only emotion, though I think many people talk about joy as if it is sort of just a more concentrated form of happiness. Joy is emotional, but it happens when the emotions of fulfillment and awe collide with the mental sense of learning something profound and permanently true. I'm going to say that again to you. Joy happens when the emotions of fulfillment and awe well up and collide with the mental sense of having learned something profound that is now permanently true. Joy is the fruit of of encountering an unyielding universal truth that has profound consequences for daily life. So, an example to help you here, okay? I'll never forget the very first time that I saw the sun set over the ocean. When that happened for me, I experienced joy. I'm very moved by physical things. I felt joy the first time I stood at the Grand Canyon. I feel joy often when I'm hiking in the mountains. I feel joy when I'm out on the open water, when I stand at the shore of a large lake or a beach. These are places where I just feel like something opens up inside of me that's sort of kept the, the lid stays screwed on in my daily life where I'm inside buildings and driving in cars and things like that. Now, I know it was joy because I both felt elated and my imagination was filled with thoughts of what else could be true in light of the magnitude and majesty of the setting sun. So I had a right now experience of emotion, and my mind shifted. Something opened where I began to think, okay, if this is true, if the sun can look like this across the water where it looks like the world is on fire but it's not, if I can have this immersive experience, I want to do this again. And I want other people to see this. And I have questions about, is this going to happen every day at sunset? Is it just the weather? Is it the clouds? What about sunrise? Is it the same? Who can I bring around me? I'm looking up and down the beach. Does anybody else care about this? It's the emotional sense of, I'm here right now, and I've never felt something like this, mixed with, what could possibly happen next? Because this is true. And this is not something that's reserved for physical phenomena. I remember a phone call that I got uh, early in 2020 when my mom and dad had to let me know that she was diagnosed with stage four metastatic cancer, that it was in her brain, her bones, all over her body. And I remember the sense of crushing defeat when we were told it was gonna be a matter of weeks. And my mom now is totally clean and is still alive. When we got that phone call, when we finally found out that all the tumors were gone, her bones had come back and built themselves back, and she was healthy and able to return to life, that was a joy moment for me. Because I had this sense of awe, I couldn't control it. There was nothing I could have done to contribute to my mom's health. Frankly, from a medical standpoint, it was too late for any of us, and it was going to take an act of God if she was going to get better. Now, embracing the emotional sense of, thank you, God, and this is amazing, and wow, we just couldn't have done this without you, mixed with the mental sense of all of the opportunities and possibilities that that opens up. For my life, that my mom's going to be around, maybe to even see my daughter get married. 
when she could have possibly not even met her at the point that we were in foster care mixed with when we got that diagnosis about my mom. It also tells me that there's hope for other people, that when I as an elder and a pastor come into people's homes and lay hands and pray and go before God's throne, that I'm not just going through an empty ritual. The joy that I felt proves to me that there's more out there than what I felt, but also I felt it. I don't know if that's beginning to land for you and make sense. This, to me, is really the daily lived experience of people who pray to God honestly and then have him answer those prayers. We can bring him the minutia of our lives, and we should. We should bring him our frustrating children and our bad days and our sore throats. All of those things matter. But when we hand him things that are impossible and then he solves them, joy is most often the way that we experience that. Intellectually, new horizons open up for us. This is something for us in our lives that no one else can do for us. You can't hear another person's story and get this sense of joy. Maybe what I mean by that is you can't hear that somebody else had some distant relative that got healed and you suddenly immerse yourself in that. Maybe your distant relative did and you're hearing their story. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you can't just copy and paste somebody else's experience and have this. And you can't just read about it in a book and you can't sort of emotionally manipulate yourself into it because you'll know that you did and you might find the emotional element is there but you'll lose that sense of new intellectual horizons that comes along with it as well. You can't make this for yourself. It happens to us when we come into contact with the flaming hot live wire of God's glory and we get lit up with what it means to be connected to him and what he can do for us. Joy makes two statements. So maybe this will help clarify this for you. Okay, if you're taking notes, I would write this down. Joy says, I am in awe and I am going to be okay. Those are the two things that joy brings into our lives. Joy is not a behavior to force. Being joyful is not some kind of litmus test for your faith or your Christianity or the security of your soul. Joy is a response to a God who is always doing things that put us in a position of awe and remind us that we're okay. Those are the two things that joy says. Joy is one part of what we bring to the Father if we truly get to know him in prayer and we learn to interact with him as if he is right here. Now, with time and shared experience, what will happen to us is our souls will change. We'll reorient away from the things that make us anxious, the things that are painful in our lives, or the places we've been damaged, which for many of us is sort of what our souls orbit around all the time right now. That can change. Instead, we begin to orient our being around being in awe of God. Not because we're supposed to, so we try as hard as we can to force it, but because God is awesome, and because he does what is awesome, and because how he loves us is awesome. We reorient ourselves around being with God and knowing that we will be okay. No prophetic vision necessary. No tea leaves, no Ouija board, no tarot cards required. Being with our Heavenly Father is very much for us like my first sunset was for me. Our hearts pound at our raw emotional response to what he is like when we experience him, what he can do, how much he loves us. It becomes real to us. And our minds begin to race with the possibilities of what his love and presence and character could mean for our futures. What could all this mean for the world, for all the lost and the broken around us? We cherish our Father with joy in our hearts and minds. Now, we also cherish him with gratitude. Gratitude is best understood as the past tense of joy. So I don't have an elaborate definition or example for you, but I can say this to you. If you figure out joy and then just live a little while, gratitude will happen. Because the two pieces that make up gratitude are joy and time. Experiencing joy again and again begins to teach us where we reach the point where we're not entitled, we're not assuming that God owes us something, but we know his character well enough that we begin to expect him to do good. We begin to expect him to meet us in that same way because he's done it so many times before. When we look back on a life lived with joy, gratitude springs up on its own. We see the hope of what is possible when we encounter God as our Father. 
and when we understand that he'll keep all of his promises, and that the longer we live joyfully in our Father's presence, the more gratitude that will well up within us. So we cherish our Father with joy in our hearts and minds. We are grateful for all he has done in us and for us. And then finally, the third piece of the puzzle of cherishing our Father is worship. We worship him. We worship him because he is always who he says he is, just like the sun is always glorious at sunset. Worship is the product of a holistic understanding of God. It blends together the joy of sharing our right now moments with God. It blends that with the anticipation of knowing that we'll find joy in God again together. It blends that together with the gratitude that comes from looking back on what God has done for us so far. Worship combines my personal individual experience with the testimonies of my brothers and sisters that I know and love from the local church. It mixes in the music of faithful saints who have sung to our Father for centuries. It draws on the ancient stories of Israel and Jesus and the church. And it helps me find my place in God's redemptive history. Whereas joy and gratitude are individual in nature and come from within me as I experience God, worship is cosmic in nature. It comes from outside of me and often in spite of me and in spite of my circumstances. And so these three together, joy and gratitude and worship, these are the ingredients of cherishing your father. But you'll never cherish him if you don't believe that he's close. And you won't care if he's close if you can't understand that he loves you and he wants what's good and right for you. So if we're going to take Jesus seriously, then we have to follow his instructions. When we pray, he says, pray like this. Pray as if God is actually your father, loving and kind and working for your ultimate good. Every time you pray, even when you pray before lunch, even when you pray on your way to work, even when you ask uh, or ask to pray at life group, maybe, and you wish that you didn't have to out loud, or if you're praying with children in a classroom on a Sunday morning, Jesus says that God is your father. So start your prayers, start every prayer there. Take the weight of the universe off your shoulders and instead come to God as a person who wants to know him. Once you have come to believe that God is your father, then pray as if he's right here next to you. You don't have to dress your prayers up in formal language or old English phrases to get your father's attention. He's not light years away. He's within your reach. So pray like you would. Pray in the same way that you would share your heart with a trusted friend, leaning in close across your dining room table at home. Your father is within your reach. And then... Once you can see that God is your father, and once you have learned to believe that he is close by, cherish that truth. Hold him close and hold him high in your heart. Is honor a part of that? Sure. Can you hallow his name? Man, you can hallow him as much as you want, but also hold him close and love him deeply with joy and with gratitude and with worship. Cherish his goodness. Cherish his nearness. Cherish how available and present and accessible he is to you, and you will find that it will become natural for you to share your life with him to share the highs and the lows, the big losses, the small frustrations, the major wins and the little pleasures. And the joy and the gratitude and the worship he deserves will come naturally when you learn to live as if he's with you because he is with you. So let's pray to him together now. Would you join me, please? Father, we love you. And we come to you trusting uh, that you're listening because, man, even after looking at your word and hearing from your son and doing our very best to understand the ins and outs of relationship with you, I'm sure that there are folks in the room that are still shaking their head. Even if they're not really out loud, they're shaking their head inside and they're going, mm, it's never been like that for me. I've never known God in that way. I'm not even sure that you can. I don't even know if I want to. If I would even invite him into the mess that I'm living through or the junk that I'm carrying or the prejudice and bigotry and fear and pain that I know that I'm carrying inside myself and I hate that I can't solve. And so, God, I'm asking you to give us the humility and the trust to just let you in to whatever it is that we're doing today. 
please convince us that we don't have to wait any longer to clean ourselves up or get things right to approach you, that approaching you now is what you want us to do. Bringing all of our junk with us is what you want us to do. Opening ourselves not to the wrath and judgment that are waiting if we resist you, but to the love and mercy that are available now, that that's what you want us to do. You can change us. You can give us the courage to come. Please draw us close, Father. May this church be a place that anybody can come who's carrying anything and meet a Father who is near and worthy of love. We love you, God. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.